Welcome to another edition of The Best Business Mind, hosted by serial entrepreneur and author Mark Kramer. Tune into The Best Business Minds to listen to thought-provoking interviews with best-selling business book authors who are today's leading innovators, entrepreneurs, and industry experts from around the globe. Welcome to another edition of The Best Business Minds, where we interview business leaders and academics that write thought-provoking books. I'm Mark Kramer, serial entrepreneur who consults with family businesses and entrepreneurs. This is our 131st show. Today's guest is leadership expert Jacqueline Carter, who we've had on before um, when she talked about uh, another book that she had written that was also excellent. But today's book is The Compassionate Leader. And of course, we all need leaders who are going to be compassionate at the same time that they get great results for us because people like compassion, but the results are super important as well. So you were on a show, as I mentioned, for a different book two years ago. What have you been up to professionally? And has COVID made you more a compassionate leader? Well, first of all, Mark, thank you so much. It's such a privilege to be back. And, and hello, everyone. Thank you so much for your interest in compassionate leadership. And, and Mark, simple answer to the question. I think the last two years have hopefully helped us all to be able to dig a little bit deeper into our own compassion. I mean, all of us have, have had struggles. All of us had challenges. Just an interesting thing is that we actually wanted to write this book and, and specifically focus on research around compassion and leadership before the pandemic. And then the pandemic hit. And one of the key things that we focused on was asking ourselves the, the simple question that I think so many leaders ask is how to do hard things that we need to do as leaders, but do them in a human way. And that was really what we, we had the privilege of being able to, to do as part of our research study. Um, so before I ask you about your company, tell us a little bit about your co-author as well. Yes, Rasmus Hugard, he is my uh, my co-author of this book and, and also the founder of Potential Project, which is a global company uh, where we work together. We have the privilege of being in 28 countries and we support leaders and teams and organizations like Accenture and Ikea and Lego and Unilever and many more. And our purpose is to create a more human world of work through harnessing the full potential of the mind. Awesome. Uh, and I actually, there's a company that I'm dealing with that I want to send you their uh, information about a device they've come out with to improve people's minds. So I'll, I'll send you the deck about that. You might I find it interesting. That. I would um, love it. Why is your company called Potential Project? Yeah, essentially because we believe that fundamentally all of us have way more potential than necessarily what our current environments in terms of our work environments enable us to be able to bring to the table. And so essentially that's what we're looking at is how can, through understanding and managing the mind, and that's really our sweet spot, is fundamentally understanding the mind both from a scientific and also an experiential perspective. How can we bring the best of ourselves uh, to be able to really flourish not only individually within corporations, but at the end of the day, to also support organizations being more successful at their objectives. How do you define compassion in a business setting and what's the difference between, and you talk about this in the book, between compassion and empathy? Yes. So simple definition of compassion. Compassion is the intention to be a benefit. And 
the way that we define it, and we work, as I said, with researchers, so we engage neuroscientists that are actually studying these different aspects of the brain. And what, from a scientific perspective, and I know that you have a very global audience, so it's important for us to level set in terms of terminology, um, but essentially, when we have the experience of empathy, which is a beautiful human emotion, it's our ability to be able to feel with somebody. So feel somebody else's pain or feel somebody else's joy. This is an, an amazing thing. And for us as leaders, it is really important for us to be able to connect with another person's experiences. Um, but this is actually activated when we look at fMRI scans. What we can see is empathy is activated in those emotional centers of our brain. Um, which is wonderful and important. But we know that empathy actually has some downsides and there's been a lot of research and happy to share more about it, um, but that we know that we can over-index on empathy and we're so engaged in somebody else's experience, especially if that's negative experience, we start to suffer ourselves. Empathy can also make us succumb to unconscious biases. We know that we empathize more with people that look like us than people that don't look like us. So moving away from empathy, empathy, although being very important, we need to connect with empathy. But when we can experience the intention to be of benefit, which is really compassion, we can move from the emotional centers of our brain into the prefrontal cortex, where we can have a more rational perspective, where we can look at things in terms of longer term, where we can look at things in terms of, as you said, how does this relate to business, where we can look at the business success. So as opposed to making fleeting decisions, which we can make when we're in an empathetic mode, we can be more rational and at the same time have that bigger picture perspective in terms of that intention to be a benefit. Uh, how has the pandemic changed the way leaders, managers lead? I've got to believe uh, mm. this has had maybe one of the most significant impacts in the past hundred years. Absolutely, absolutely. I think a couple of things. Um, I think the first thing is, and one of the beautiful things I think about the pandemic is that it's enabled, I hope, all of us to be more vulnerable. And, you know, one of the things that we really focus on, and this is around being a more compassionate leader, is to be able to help us all to recognize that we are human uh, first and, and we need to bring more of our humanity to work. And I think for all of us being able to have the experiences of, of, you know, working out of our homes and maybe seeing, you know, kids or pets walk in our background, um, being able to allow ourselves to, to show up as, as full human beings. And at the same time, also, I think all of us have experienced loss of different kinds. And I think that's also enabled us to connect more deeply. And I really hope one of the things that we're really watching very closely as we're starting to see you know, return to, to work. And although that has taken many different shapes and forms, um, that we don't lose that, that ability to see each other as, as full human beings and connect and be vulnerable. And uh, so that's one thing I think that's really changed. I think the other thing that's really changed is of course, you know, the great reckoning that I think is happening in the workforce where a lot of people are questioning, you know, how hard do I want to work? Is this company, you know, really valuable? And for top employees that can now work for any company in the world from the comfort of their living rooms. There is a great reorganization that's taking place in terms of people want to feel cared for and they're demanding that from their employees. And for us as leaders, it's now really critical for us to be compassionate in our view um, because that's what employees today are expecting. And if we want to retain and attract the top talent in the future, we need to be able to create 
compassionate cultures where people feel cared for and supported. Yeah, the funny part of this is as the technology has allowed us to work anywhere. Yeah. When I'm 61, when I got out of college, you're pretty much, you know, land locked, right? Like geographically locked. You only had so many choices for employers. The employers were kings or queens and you were uh, afraid to say anything for fear of losing your job. And now, uh, 40 years later, people were like, well, you know what? I'm just not happy with the culture here. I'm out of here. And the smartest ones get, uh, there's a lot of people interested in them. And I guess now actually at all levels, right? Restaurants, if the restaurant owner doesn't treat the employees well and um, compensate them in a fair way, they'll go, you know what? There's a hundred other restaurants looking for me too. So I'm going to go and move on. Exactly, Mark. And I think that's the one thing that I'd say is another aspect is it's really, I I don't think you need to be a researcher in this space to say it's really challenging to be a leader today. Because not only, of course, for so many of us, our businesses are, have become more complex, change is, of course, constant. Um, and, and the challenges of running a business and le- being a leader today are still, you know, are, are so, so, so difficult. We've got so many new issues to manage. And at the same time, this new expectation from employees, um, let alone having to, of course, address um, and care for our people when we know there are so many mental health issues. So I just want to say it's it's one of the things that we really see. It's it's really 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 hard to be a leader today, and that's why doubling down on on you know what it means to to bring our best selves and and realize what's important to us and and specifically looking at our compassionate nature we feel is really critical. I wonder how do leaders make sure that compassion doesn't go out the window when they hit a bad quarter, a bad couple of quarters. Or the, you know, as we're in the middle of the recession, because I'm starting to see leaders go back to what things were like before, because they were like, oh, I can be compassionate because we're having quarter over quarter growth. But when things don't go uh, well, then it's like, oh, we need to ratchet down, forget that day off, forget your kid's soccer game. We need uh, revenue. And some of it's not in the control of the people that they're telling you need to show up in the physical office or you, or you can't go to your kid's hockey game. Um, So what's your take on that? Yeah, absolutely. And that's why one of the things that we talk about in our book and also what we did in our research is we need to combine both compassion and wisdom and, and compassion, you know, the intention to be a benefit and wisdom is really knowing the right thing to do and having the courage to do it. And we need to be able to combine both of these things. And I think what you're saying is, you know, when we do things that are short term focused, like, you know, not, you know, like saying somebody, you know, you know, sorry, you know, you can't, you know, taking taking benefits away or privileges away, um, you know, it, it may be uh, enabling us to make that short term deliverable or that short term result or this quarter. But we know that it's not going to enable us to have that long term success. And I think that the the wisdom that we need to apply in terms of running a business is we need to we need to look beyond these quarterly results. And, and I know for many of us as leaders, that's very challenging. Um, but we also know that in terms of, you know, again, retaining top talent, um, we need to have the long game in mind. Should leaders devote, uh, deliver compassion differently for women and men? There is, uh, there's, there's no, no difference uh, for sure. I mean, the intention to be a benefit is all about showing up and, and being able to pause in the moment and assess 
you know, what is the best way to be a benefit in this moment? And it doesn't matter whether it's male or female. Um, of course, you know, we work in very, very diverse and, and global environments. And it's so important for us to recognize that even if there were specific rules for, for men or for women, but we know that we have so many different cultures, so many different values that we're coming with the table. I think the key thing uh, when we look at the intention to be a benefit is what I may think as being beneficial for you is, is not necessarily compassion. Um, so for me, um, having the intention to be a benefit, I need to make sure that I'm really looking at what is in your best interest. And, and that can be from a gender perspective, from a diversity perspective, um, and so many different other factors that we need to take into consideration. How has the Me Too movement impacted and changed leaders? I mean, I know it's, gosh, I guess it's like four years ago, right? When that um, was forefront for everyone. And I, as I talked to you about before it started, a lot of times these things come up, they have their own 15 minutes of fame. And then they're forgotten, just kind of like ethical issues on Wall Street. When that happens, oh, then there's all these courses on ethics. And then as soon as that dies down, then nobody's taking those ethics courses when nobody's yeah. sponsoring them. So what, what do you think about this? Yeah, I think that overall, we are seeing um, a radical change in workplaces in terms of a recognition of the need to create a sense of belonging. And, and it goes beyond just you know, diversity um, and respect um, and inclusion um, and making sure that 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 all voices it, that people feel a, a sense of connection. And I think that, you know, the Me Too movement has just been, you know, one of many different things that we've seen in terms of how we need to really fundamentally look at being able to create more inclusive environments. I think one of the things that we've seen, um, which has been a negative trend and something that 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 we've really worked to counter is that you know things like the Me Too movement? What it can do is it can make um, it can make some leaders feel like I, I can't say anything right, so I'm not going to say anything at all, or you know I can't um, you know I, I don't want to you know take this this woman out to lunch um, because I'm concerned about how that might look, and and so I think one of the things that we've really seen is the importance, you know, going beyond just diversity inclusion training um, and being able to have better compassionate conversations. And compassionate conversations are me being able to say, you know, I wanna make sure that when I'm communicating with you, my intentions are, are to be of benefit, to create a positive environment for us. Um, but I need your feedback because I'm human and I might make mistakes and I have biases. And I need to be able to create the conditions where we can have more courageous conversations um, and so that we don't have misunderstandings and that we all feel supported and that we all feel safe in, in the workplaces, which is which is fundamental, fundamental human right to feel safe at work. You're right about that, because uh, there's um, somebody I deal with who's the human, uh, chief human um, improvement officer of a global company. And she said when this all started, uh, she said a lot of the um, men who were used to mentoring women just said, I'm not doing that anymore. It's just too risky for me. I, I can't, I'm sure, she said even her chairperson said, I'm sure I've said things that have been offensive. I just didn't know it at the time. Had yeah. not thought about it, thought about, you know, just uh, said it like I would to a guy in a locker room. And she, he's in a sense treating them like I would treat guys but not realizing that it could be interpreted in the wrong way. And so that became a big problem. 
Well, and I think, you know, the reality is, is that there's definitely some people um, who have done things that are egregious that that should, you know, that yeah. should be held accountable for their actions. Um, but I think that in the middle area, there's a lot of there's a lot of us that are just, you know, and that's the nature of unconscious biases is that I could say something that could offend somebody on this call. And just so you all know, that wouldn't be my intention. I'm, you know, as I'm human, I'm, I'm doing the best that I can. And I know that I have biases and some of them I'm not aware of. And so I think that, um, you know, what, what I worry about, and I think that's what we've seen is if we're so cautious that we're so afraid to say anything because we're so afraid it could hurt anybody, then it stops the flow of communication. It stops the flow of learning. Um, it stops the ability to, for us to be able to mentor and support each other. And, and, and I think that's really what I said, like compassionate conversations have to be about, you know, you giving, giving me the, the, the space uh, to, to be able to make mistakes and, and us having a trusting relationship where I know um, if I say something that offends you, um, you're going to give me the benefit of the doubt and share that with me um, so that then I can learn and I can improve and, and that we can then be able to have um, a, better, a better working environment going forward. Here's a question from the audience. Do you find that companies that promote compassionate leadership attract more people with disabilities, both mm. physical and mental? It's an interesting question. It, absolutely. I mean, fundamentally, um, uh, and I think that's exactly what the research shows, but again, we probably don't need research to show that is, you know, being able to create environments where we are all feel like we are welcome, uh, where we where we know that at least there's that intention in terms of bringing compassion to the table uh, to create environments where where we can be diverse. And Accenture is one of the big companies that uh, that we've had the privilege of working with since 2014, um, and they are really looking to celebrate uh, the diversity of people, whether it's physical, mental. Um, and, uh, and of course, uh, you know, and, and again, I'm not saying Accenture is perfect, um, but, but certainly I think that they're able to, they're, they're looking directly to be able to attract a more, uh, diverse and inclusive workforce, uh, which, which long-term has, has benefits for, for them, um, and benefits for all of us. Another question from the audience for employers who really do lead with compassion, how can they show their clients that they're valuing compassionate working environment? Well, that's a great question. I think, I think first of all, um, you know, compassion in, in leadership and in business shouldn't be something that we use as a marketing statement. You know, it has to be something that we, that we truly have the intention to do. And, and, you know, we don't want, uh, you know, compassion washing, like it's like, oh, we're compassionate, uh, you know, we're a great company. So I think the first thing that I would say is that, you know, intention um, and, and then actions speak louder than words. And it's something that uh, certainly that we've seen is that, uh, you know, compassionate companies um, really show up in a different way. And, uh, you know, um, and, and you can see that. And, and especially, I think, um, in hard times, uh, you know, how uh, companies deal with uh, when they have, um, you know, situations like if you look at Airbnb during the pandemic, and uh, Brian, the CEO, you know how he how he dealt with the layoffs uh, and 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 being uh, extremely compassionate about how they were going to support people, uh, and that stands in stark contrast to other organizations how they've dealt with challenges. I think, Mark, it goes back to what you said earlier. You know, it, it can be easy to be compassionate and good compassionate in good times. I think our our true colors in terms of our values around compassion come up when things are difficult, and I think that's really what we can show with our clients. 
funny. Uh, I was in Las Vegas for a conference and the cab driver was telling me yesterday, we were talking about the pandemic and how people just got annihilated financially that, you know, your retirement that you thought was at this point is now maybe never because of what's happened. She said there were two casinos that paid their employees through the entire, because her dad worked for one of them through the entire pandemic. Yeah. And she said, and the others immediately laid um, people off, even if they could financially provide them full pay, half pay, quarter pay, something that, you know, would help them. And here in Philadelphia, the 76ers, the basketball team owned by three billionaires, laid off all the uh, working staff and the players still got paid, but the working staff didn't. And the outcry was so great that they put all those people back on the payroll throughout the entire uh, the entire lockdown. So you wonder, you know, these people need to read your book uh, <laughs> and you probably need them as, uh, they need to engage you as a client. Another uh, question from the audience. Do you think that a compassionate leader can be confused by a weak leader in the market? We asked that, that was one of my questions too. Yeah, I love that question. And it is something that um, that we really explored in, in our work. And um, and what I would say is compassion is really tough. There is, you know, and it's really, especially, and, and that's why what we focused on, as I said, you know, how to do hard things in a human way. Um, like, you know, hard things, like, you know, giving somebody really tough feedback um, is, is a hard thing because we don't want to hurt other people's feelings, you know, having to stand up and, and, and say to a number of people that they're, that they no longer have a job or that this project that they've worked their heart into is going to be canceled. So, so compassion, there is nothing, there is nothing, um, easy, uh, about compassion. Um, and, and it is something that is actually needs to be seen as a, as a source of strength, because when we can stand up and we have that intention to be a benefit, um, it really is about looking at the situation, the human being, um, but also that bigger picture business perspective and being able to step into to making really hard decisions. So, uh, so yes, it, it can be perceived as being weak, but um, but as a, as I said, it's really um, doing hard things is hard, and and doing them in a human way is even harder. But that's that's really what compassionate leadership is all about. Um. Another question from the audience. I was in a room with uh, all 40 plus year olds and we really sounded like parents complaining about millennials. What compassionate conversations can I have with these leaders to embrace millennials? Yeah, I love I love that question. I would have loved to be in that room, uh, by the way. So that, uh, you know, it's really interesting, um, you know, a couple of trends that we're seeing in terms of with millennials. And I think most of you on the call probably know this, but you know, one, and, and I think we should really celebrate um, the positive aspects of what we're seeing in the next generation of leaders, and as opposed to being disgruntled about uh, perhaps things that we think are are, are, are negatives. Um, but the one thing is they're really purpose-oriented, and, and purpose is really important to them. And, um, and I think that's something to celebrate, that in not only in terms of looking at making sure that uh, the purpose of the company is clear, the purpose of how they contribute is clear, uh, but I also think looking at an inner compass of purpose, and, and this is something that we do a lot of work with millennial leaders, 
And one of the things that we find is, you know, having a real sense for what it means to be a leader and, and why that's important to you and looking at really um, capitalizing on that inner compass in terms of what drives you uh, is something that we see that millennials really, really embrace. Um, I think the other aspect of that is, you know, I, I think that in a lot of ways, the younger generation is teaching, I'll say myself. Um, about balance. Um, and, you know, I know, uh, I, you know, I used to, um, you know, 20 years ago, uh, feel privileged to come in on a Sunday afternoon to, to meet with a partner um, at Deloitte Consulting where I worked because I couldn't wait to get that, you know, five minutes of attention. And uh, this new generation is, is prioritizing balance in their lives. And, and I think we could all learn from that because we know that the research shows is that when we're more balanced, um, and most of us are not balanced. Uh, when we're more balanced, we're actually better when we come back to work because we have a, a richer balance in our lives. So uh, so those are just perspectives that I have in terms of engaging millennials. The other thing, and maybe I'll just say, is that one thing that we know also is that they are really looking for development and feedback, and we should not shy away uh, from being able to give uh, really good constructive feedback to millennials um, because it is something, you know, in looking at their, their, they have a high motivation and a high need to learn. And, uh, and I think that's something that we should also really celebrate and just making sure that we're doing it in a compassionate way. Um, and, uh, and that certainly has been uh, something key to success that we've seen in our research. Um, my daughter has a global marketing practice. And before she did that, she said, I never want to be an entrepreneur like you because you're here, uh, even though you come to our games and we have dinner every night, you're just you know working like a bazillion hours. I, my wife then even had to say, Friday at five, you're to close the laptop and you're not to open it again till Sunday at 10. And like forced closure yeah. uh, to get some kind of uh, balance here. And now she's got this global practice and now she's working like a maniac as well. But she said, you know what, I... I am, but not as bad as when people want me to go run their venture, like she was offered to be managing partner of a sizable ad agency, a mid-sized ad agency. And she said, I, I want some quality of life. I know I won't have that. Uh, and I certainly don't want to work for an ad agency or peer firm because they have the worst reputation for uh, quality of life. So the, this enters in the, into the calculus uh, for these kids and the concept of the um, unlimited vacation that Silicon Valley developed, um, that's for because they know these people will work and take the laptop with them on the beach. So they have to even force them to leave their laptop and lock up their phone, right? So well, and I, I think, Mark, it's also about, you know, ideally we're creating the conditions where, you know, whether we like it or not, whether it's good for human beings or not, most of us put way more time and attention into our work uh, than we do in other, any other aspect of our life. Our work is what gives us meaning. It gives us a sense of purpose. It gives us a sense of identity. And I think for all of us to be able to, as leaders, you know, create the, the conditions where people can really flourish. And then you don't have to tie somebody to their desk because it's a bad idea anyway. Um, but people will want to, you know, they'll, they'll, they'll want to lean in. They'll want to, you know, they'll be, they'll be on the beach and they'll be thinking about the problem that they're facing at work and coming up with innovative ideas because they want to be a part of it. You know, fundamentally, we know human beings, we're social beings, we're tribal. We, 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 we like feeling valuable. We, we like contributing. We, we like to be able to, to, uh, to be innovative. And I think that it's a real, 
a real a, a real shame that in organizations today, when we see that we we lose people's potential because we're not engaging them in a way that makes them feel valued and feel feel uh, feel that they can contribute. How many times do you personally feel you would do it for free, but you need yeah. to have money to, you know, because you want it, you like helping people, and yeah. you would love to uh, help help almost anybody that comes across your path. Yeah. Um, but at the same time, you you've got bills to pay like everybody else. Another question from the audience: How do you measure a person's level of curiosity in today's mm. environment and cancel culture? Debate and learning is not welcomed. How do you deal with this effectively? Yeah, I mean, it is, ah, oh, it is, it's so tough. And it really goes against everything that we know is healthy in terms of healthy debate. Um, we need to be able to have good conversations with each other. That's the bottom line. We need to learn how to have different views and be able to have ability to be able to have respect for each other um, and be able to have really constructive conversations. And I think that you know, when we when we have a cancel culture um, that prevents us from feeling like we can express diversity and opinion, uh, it shuts down so many conversations, and that's just so unhealthy for us. Uh, it's the exact opposite of what we know is 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 needed right now in any business. Not only you know diversity and inclusion is not only just a good idea, but we know that you know diversity and inclusion in our businesses enables us to be able to respond to a diverse. Um, customer base. Uh, so, so I, I would just say that um, you know you asked specifically about measuring curiosity. I, I wish I had a simple measuring stick on curiosity, um, but I think the key thing uh, that that we really and this is something maybe I'll just uh, talk about this. You know, this is something that we need to train. Um, is that we know that the human brain, we are habitual beings. We come to a certain situation and we think we know what the environment is. We think we we immediately think we know um, what somebody is like. We judge people in you know milliseconds in terms of we think we know what their opinions are going to be because of experiences that we've had in the past. And one of the things, the fundamental aspects of curiosity is that we need to suspend that judgment. We need to pause for a moment. We need to invite curiosity um, because it doesn't come naturally to us. And, and just to be really clear, um, you know, it's hard for us to look at situations from a beginner's mind because that's just not how our brain works. And we really need to, to train ourselves um, to pause in the moment and invite that curiosity uh, to overcome the natural tendencies that we have to think, we know, I know you, Mark. I can I can assume you know what your values are. I know you, and 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 uh, for me to invite curiosity and and just be curious about maybe you'll surprise me. Um, why do you write that for most leaders doing hard things in a human way is difficult? Because it is. Uh, <laughs> uh, I think fundamentally, um, you know, it's something that, uh, and this was really I, I think what we got really curious about. It's actually just an interesting story. Um, we, uh, as part of our research, we interviewed over 350 C-suite executives, and we were specifically focusing on interviewing all global companies, uh, so like IKEA, um, Eli Lilly, Accenture, and we were specifically interviewing CEOs and CHROs because we were really curious about how to do hard things in a human way. And we thought, you know, CEOs are often have to do the hard things, and the CHRO is often looking at, you know, the human factor. And, and so it was really interesting for us to be able to have these interviews. And, and one of the things that we asked is, you know, the first questions we, we asked was, 
what's the hardest thing that you ever had to do and tried to do it in a human way. And what was just so amazing to us is, is you know, oftentimes there, there were tears, you know, when people were looking at the tough, tough things that they had to do as business leaders and really wanting to do those in, in the best and, and kindest way possible. And, and I think the, um, so I, I think what we, the reason why um, that we wanted to focus on that. And that actually, I think the funny story about that is that we were so inspired by, you know, this idea of how to do hard things in a human way. We actually wanted to make that the title of the book. And, uh, and we went to Harvard and we said, you know, we want to change the title. And they said, no, we've already started um, producing the cover. You can't change the title. Um, but essentially, I think because um, this is the quintessential challenge for leaders. It gets back to what we were talking about earlier. It's really easy to be compassionate when things are easy. The real test of compassion is when things are hard and how you show up when things are hard and whether you can bring your humanity and your care um, and your, your, your big heart and your big mind it is really about the, the quintessential challenge, I think, for all of us as human beings. It can apply to our lives. Um, but certainly, uh, certainly it can apply to business. I think that um, business in all aspects has become so bottom line. I and mean, if you take a look at college football, they're firing coaches within a few games of a season yeah. with coaches who have winning records yeah. and have great, great success. So what are you saying to the kids that you're teaching in that school? I mean, the coach of Wisconsin had won three Big Ten titles, was a coach of the year had a winning season last year, started off two and three this year, they fired him. So yeah. what's the message um, behind that? I mean, I'm like blown away, but sports is great because you see it live and in person. Yeah. If you take a look at Andy Reid, who's the coach of Kansas City, his tree of coaches is amazing and their winning record and they've won Super Bowls and he's known as a compassionate coach. Players said yeah. they really, really cares. Bill Belichick, on the other hand, lived 20 years off of Tom Brady, but every one of his assistant coaches that became head coaches was known to be hard like he was, not particularly compassionate. Not a single one of them has a, a winning record. Yeah. So yeah. it goes to your research that that really does matter in terms of success. It really does matter. And I think the key thing, and this is really what we found, is that leaders that aren't compassionate can be successful. Um, and just to be very clear, they they can be successful. But what we what we've seen is two things: is number one, um, they won't be successful necessarily long term. And certainly now, as I said earlier, when we're seeing this shift, that there's a real shift in terms of top talent that are now expecting leaders to be more compassionate. So they will be they will have short term perhaps good results, but they will not have the long term benefits of committed and dedicated employees. Uh, but I think the other thing is that. One of the things that we really saw in our research was when when you choose to to be blind to the human factor, um, you're really shortcutting your own um, ability to be able to create uh, you know a, a better and more caring environment. And what we saw was that actually it's it's not only is it not good for your employees, but it's it's not good for you. Um, and leaders that are really able to step into compassionate leadership. Um, actually have better lives themselves. Um, and this was something that was both inspiring to us and, and really quite interesting in our research. Uh, we have a question. Of the companies that advocate uh, creative leadership, is innovation usually a priority, an outcome, or both? Yeah, 
that's really interesting. I think in terms of, you know, innovation, we know that um, getting back to creating environments where people can have, where people can take risks, uh, where people can can be themselves, uh, can bring their whole selves to work. Um, we know that that is incredibly important. And, and I think that, um, you know, one of the things that we know is that, you know, if somebody were to, if I were to say to all of you, be creative. I need your creativity now. You know, that's the last opportunity. You know, we don't get creative by that. So I think, um, you know, innovation in organizations is something that we uh, that, that we need to create the conditions for. It's not something that we can demand. And, uh, and, and in our work, when we are able to create safe environments where people feel psychologically safe, where people feel that um, they feel that they they're valued, they take more risks, and they can be more innovative. It's it's just that simple. Question from the audience: How do you incent and motivate people to be more compassionate without subjective uh, without subjective uh, criteria? To Mark's point, outcomes can be achieved with a variety of cultures. Yeah, I think that fundamentally, and this is really, um, you know, we know that um, we know that what what gets measured matters, um, and so we know that in the organizations, and this is in many of our consulting, the organizations that we work with, if you're only measuring your leaders on the bottom line, um, then that's what they're going to drive towards, and compassion will be some nice idea. Um, but if the only thing that I'm ever, you know, if Mark, if you were my 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 boss. And if the only thing that you and I ever sat down and cared about was 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 I driving my numbers, then that's going to be the behavior that I exhibit. And so this is why in a lot of our work, what we see is we can measure compassion. Um, it is something and, and we actually have that's part of our um, uh, some of the things that we do. We have a broad uh, range of, of assessments that we can use. And what we really encourage companies is to take this seriously and actually measure compassion. And one of the things that, that we encourage, and, and this is something I think many of you can relate to, is, you know, what do you do with uh, uh, the leader that's uh, that's a jerk and everybody hates but has great results? And, and this is, um, you know, the, again, a short-term focus because uh, you know that that person is toxic to your, your culture and um and and you've measured it you know that they're not uh they're not doing they're not doing well in terms of the human factors and uh and our our recommendation our strong recommendation is look for the long term uh don't destroy today's culture uh because you will not it'll take years to be able to rebuild that trust so so you need to measure these things and you can and you need to value them yeah and we always see that the people get greedy you know the yeah. ceos oh my god look at the the results they're doing, but meanwhile, they're burning out their people right. or the very smartest people who, who can get jobs other places yeah. just end up leaving. And then yeah. you wonder when um, when the market isn't frothy for your product and sales drop off and you're wondering, oh my God, what happened? Well, those smart people who might have figured out how to keep the ball rolling forward have left. Well, and I think that's the other aspect that we're seeing um, you know, back to the question about millennials, but not only, you know, do we see, you know, this, when I talked earlier about we, this, this sense of purpose, but, but millennials will actually also from a, a customer perspective, we know that they will invest money in companies that they see as treating their people well, and they will not invest in companies, um, by products, uh, from, from companies that they believe are, are, are not seen as being, uh, good corporate citizens, 
and so there's real, real bigger scale motivation, not only internally, but externally how you're perceived. You know, I, uh, when I taught at Wharton, I had students who worked for Apple during Steve Jobs' time there. And they said, you know, as brilliant as he was, if it wasn't for Tim Cook, I never would have stayed. Yeah. And, and prior uh, to that was Steve Wozniak. Um, Otherwise you never would hurt because he was not a a compassionate leader uh, in in any sense of the word, but he was, had a brilliant mind in terms of design and, and looking into the future. So you need that partner if you're going to lead in a certain way that you're not the compassionate one, you need to have someone who is. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Another question from the audience in almost all situations, excuse me one second. In almost all situations that I had a compassionate attitude with an employee, having a good conversation, giving another opportunity, later that employee damaged internally the company. That's the kind of situation that makes me think it. if we as leaders also have to uh, lucky with the persons that we work with. So they have to be lucky with the person that you work with, that that actually works with them. What's your take on that? Yeah, I would say, you know, it's it's a it's a really like the one thing about compassion in leadership is that of course, you know, we we can only um control ourselves and our and our own actions. Um we can't always control how other people are gonna interpret things. So I, I think maybe two things that I would say to that one, I'm sorry, uh, because that doesn't sound like a nice situation. Um, but two things I would say is one, um you know, having a, um, a a learning mindset, I think is really important is because what I may think is like, I may think I'm having a really compassionate conversation with somebody. And, you know, and one of the simple examples that I'll use, which might be helpful is, you know, one of the things that we often think of, and it is so important is trying to put yourself in somebody else's shoes, but we know and again, back to being in a diverse environment, you know, I don't know what it's like to walk, you know, in, in somebody's shoes that has had a very different life experience than I. And so I can think that I'm being really compassionate because I'm saying things that would work well for me in terms of how I would maybe want to receive a difficult message, but it didn't end at all well. And I think the key thing back to having a learning mindset is to make sure that you're asking questions like, how is this landing? You know, my intention here is, is to try to make sure that you know that I care about you and I care about your work here. I care about our work together. Um, but how is this landing? So having a learning mindset um, and then making sure that that we get feedback uh, from uh, from that employee to make sure that we find out, you know, how what could we have done differently? Um, and this was something else that we heard from, from pretty much every uh, C-suite executive that we interviewed um, was that compassionate leadership is not a destination. It's not like one day you arrive and like, all of a sudden I am the most perfect compassionate leadership on the planet. Um, but it's a constant learning journey. And, and you know, sometimes uh, we try to be compassionate and it doesn't land well. And sometimes that's on us uh, because, uh, you know, we didn't assess the situation correctly. Sometimes that's on the other person, but use each of those opportunities as a as an opportunity to learn. Yeah. And as somebody mentioned earlier, some people will think you're soft if you're compassionate. It all depends on the culture. You know, the Russian culture, they had a czar in the 18, 1890s that was really compassionate. And the people thought he was weak. And then that somebody killed him because yeah. they thought he was weak. And so the next czar had to come on and be a lot uh, stronger. Uh, so it all depends a lot on the culture. Question uh, from the audience. How can we measure compassion? Yeah. 
Yeah, well, we have, like I said, uh, it is something that, um, you know, we've developed a compassionate leadership assessment. And, and, and what's really quite interesting about that is that, you know, back to what I said about, I can think I'm very compassionate, but, um, you know, there is an element of compassion that's in the eye of the beholder. And the way that we look at that is, uh, you know, and, and it is a very comprehensive assessment that we go through. Um, but it is really looking at how we're able to look at things, like I said, uh, from that intention to be a benefit, um, looking at things, am I interested in my own goals? So just to give you a specific example of that, oftentimes um, when we're under pressure and we may make a short-term decision, it's because I'm looking at you know, my own career and I don't want to look like a weak leader. So I'm going to put pressure on my team to get things done because I don't want to be seen as being weak. So, you know, compassion is about how are we looking at things from a, a, not a me, but a we, how are we looking at things from a, from an organization? How are we looking at things from a long-term perspective? So these are a lot of the factors that we look at in terms of measuring compassion. And, uh, and then I think it's also the other aspect that we do in our assessments is also getting feedback from employees in terms of you know, do, you know, do like, if you guys were all part of my team, do you generally get the sense that I'm here to be of service, that I, that I care, um, that I'm doing my best to answer your questions in the best way possible. Um, and that's also a way to be able to measure compassion is to be able to get feedback from, from those you lead. Um, any recommendation for being a compassionate leader around older and more experienced people without seeming condescending? I, I, I'm seeing that now on a venture I'm involved in where the CEO is 22 years old, we yeah. put him in that role because he has the technological expertise, but his communication skills in dealing with very experienced people is kind of lacking. Yeah, yeah, love that question. Um, I, I, you know, I think that there isn't one size fits all. And I think that, you know, a key part of, of being able to be a compassionate leader is, is to recognize the diversity of human experience, you know, whether that's age, whether that's gender, whether that's whatever, you know, diverse cultural background. Um, and, and ideally, again, um, you know, I think it's interesting, you know, if you're concerned about appearing condescending, check your intentions first, because you may have some, maybe there are some things that, that that you're bringing to the table that are your own biases about whether that person is really qualified to, to lead. So check your own intentions um, and then be curious about their experience. And, and from my experience, uh, and this is really what we found in our research is that when we show up with, uh, with good intentions and we show up with an attitude of, of curiosity and learning, um, as opposed to coming up with uh, with assumptions that we think we know the answers, uh, there's a lot we can learn uh, from intergenerational, uh, inter you know, uh, very a lot of inter inter a lot wide range of intersectional interactions. The other thing I noticed is that compassionate leaders handle pressure well. Yes. Ones who are not compassionate panic easily, and when yeah. things aren't going right then uh, that whole veneer of compassion totally disappears and the real person comes out. But when things are tough, then you find out who really is the compassionate leader. It's, it's so true. And I think it's really, um, you know, are we, you know, it comes back to our values, right? I mean, you know, compassionate leadership can be something, you know, that, that can be a lofty idea. Oh yeah, it sounds really nice. But I mean, really, you know, 
the intention to be a benefit needs to be something, you know, that you truly believe. You you truly believe that in order for us to to thrive in in our workplaces, we need to respect uh, and embrace um, our full humanity. We need to really respect and and embrace um, the people around us. We care deeply, care, and and I think that um, you know, for for people that are looking at it being window dressing, it shows up pretty quickly. Um, that they're really caring more about themselves than they're caring about others. And, and that's why, again, when, when push comes to shove, you see that window dressing gets lifted very quickly. Question from the audience. If you manage larger organizations, can you expect 100% agreement on anything, including the likability or effectiveness of the leader? Where do you draw the line between a good leader and something less? In, uh, in terms of consensus, especially when we have organizations today, which are a blend of many previous companies, organizations, and cultures. We see that in politics every day, right? I mean, yeah. you know, yeah. the, when they measure the president's um, effectiveness or how people perceive they're doing their job, yeah, almost every president gets crushed. Yeah, yeah. I think you already know the answer to that question, so I won't say that there's absolutely no way that you can get consensus across such a wide range of human beings. And it's, and it is interesting, you know, I think that, uh, you know, uh, there may be some of us that, uh, you know, there used to be a lot more uniformity in society, there used to be a lot more ability within businesses, um, you know, many years ago that that you could have a leader that could kind of say, this is the way that we're going, and everybody would agree. And of course, that's just not the case anymore. Uh, so consensus is incredibly challenging. I, I would say two things. I would say the first thing is to embrace um, that diversity, embrace that uh, it can feel uh, challenging. Um, but we it also it, it you know, we we need businesses to be able to be dynamic and and respond to uh, to to uh, an environments that there isn't one right answer. Uh, and so to be able to have and celebrate that lack of consensus in our organizations, as frustrating as it can be, um, is actually, I think, key to success in businesses today. I think the other thing I'll just say um, from a compassionate leadership perspective is, you know, I think there's a big difference between, like I said earlier, being able to um, have disagreements and and respect and and be able to um, to not strive towards consensus because we know we're never going to get there, and especially in large organizations. But to be able to respectfully disagree and and you know debate um, and uh, and be able to align on a good path forward. Um, the other thing I'll, I'll just say that this was something that we found in our research was that um, we did find that as leaders rise up in the ranks of leadership, they would be perceived um, by their employees as being less compassionate. And this was something that we really dug into. I mean, it makes sense that a first level, first line leader that has a very, you know, few number of people that they're reporting to would be able to be, could be perceived as being more compassionate. They're not making as big decisions. They have more personal connection. Um, and so we did see that, uh, that, that how, you know, senior executives were viewed uh, oftentimes as being less compassionate. And those two things that we found that were really interesting is, is one that makes sense um, because you are making decisions that are going to be unpopular. Um, but the second thing was it was back to how those decisions not only were made, but how they were communicated. And that there is a real opportunity for us as senior leaders to really show up 
um, and show our care and 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 name the you know the fact that we don't have consensus, name that not everybody agrees, um, but really name the fact that um, the priority that we place on on care for our all 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 employees. Yeah, I I think that's absolutely true. I've run over twenty five startups. The more you communicate every decision, explain exactly how things are going to, why you made that decision, even if they disagree with, they can see the logic behind why you did it. Uh, there's less pushback on, but if you just say, this is what we're doing uh, without any communication, that's going to be a big problem for people. So uh, Jacqueline, you're right about the importance of courage as a leader. Yes. What is courageous confrontation? Yeah. Thank you, Mark. It's a great question. And it is so important. I think courageous conversation is being able to step into the difficulties of leading and do the things that you don't want to do, which we know there are many things that as leaders we have to do and we don't want to do. And it's really about feeling that fear and doing it anyway. But the key thing about courageous conversations, coming back to the importance of compassion, is doing it in a caring way. It can be quite easy, actually, to think we're being courageous by being cruel. Um, being cruel is not courageous at all. It takes courage to look at the human being in front of you and say, Mark, I really care about you. And I know this is probably going to be a difficult message, but I'm going to sit here. I'm going to be present with you. I'm going to tell you what I need to tell you. And I'm going to hold in this space to be able to support you as a human being. That takes incredible courage and, and it takes incredible compassion. Yeah, I think that that's definitely the case. And you're only hurting your organization, all the people that rely on you and the person that you're dealing with, who oftentimes either will embrace it, right? Or yeah. they will like be glad that you that they that they're just not making it in that environment. And hence it's just not a good uh fit for them. And that's and that's exactly what we see, Mark, is that you know, when people are treated with respect and care and kindness. You know, initially, of course, they can be very upset about a negative message, but oftentimes, not always, it's not a guarantee, but oftentimes we see that, that people can feel that, okay, well, I don't like what happened. I don't like, I don't like, I don't like the message. I don't like the outcome, but I, I feel, I feel my integrity. I feel respected in that process. And, and I think the other thing that we really see is not only is that beneficial for you, but it's also beneficial for all of those watching, because we know that leaders have long shadows. You know, like if I have a conversation with you about something difficult, there's all other people watching how I handle that situation and wondering how if they're going to be treated the same way next. So it really is, as you say, it's not just about the one to one. It's about the one to many. And as leaders, we really need to look at what impression we're giving to our people across the board. It's funny you should say that because I come across leaders all the time and I said, what's the one mistake you think you make the most? Mm. And they go, I don't fire quick enough. And I said, yeah. I think that's one of your greatest strengths as a leader is because if you fire quick, then yeah. people uh, feel like they're walking on thin ice all the time and hence they don't want to take any kind of risk uh, or being or the smartest people don't want to be involved in that type of organization. What do you think about that? Yeah, it's it's great. It's a it's a great point. And it is something that in a lot of the conversations we had with leaders, they also shared. And I think there's two things about that. I think that if you know for sure that this person is no longer, you know, serving your 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 company's best interest, we can, because we naturally do want to avoid difficult things, 
we can wait too long to let someone go. And that does hurt. It hurts that person. Oftentimes, you know, the person knows they're not performing. And so they're waiting kind of for the shoe to drop at any point. And it also sends the wrong message to the rest of the employees. At the same time, though, I think it's really important for us to make sure that we're not making rapid decisions, that we're looking at development opportunities. We know that we are subject to our biases. So maybe, you know, have you really looked at before you come to that conclusion of I need to let this person go? Have you really looked at ways to be able to embrace that person, embrace their strengths, um, look for development opportunities and see if there's a way that maybe they can be of service in another part of the organization? So it's it's both situations are true. What I'm often asked this, what is the best day and time to have a difficult conversation? Yeah, definitely. I would say in the morning is the best time. I mean, it's, uh, you know, you really like to have somebody put in a full day work. And at the end of the day, when they're already tired and they've already contributed to the organization, uh, then to let them go is 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 just, it's not kind. Or, or to let them go and have them not have time to process it. Um, I think the other thing that's really important, so it's ideally in the morning, um, make sure that you don't have anything right right back to back after you have that conversation so that you can have time. Also, give them time. Give them, make sure that it's a day that they can then take off, um, that they can reflect on what you've said, um, that they don't have a big presentation, for example, that day or whatever it might be. Um, But ideally, what we know from a neurological perspective is that we are usually more open in the morning. Um, Hopefully, we've had a good night's sleep, which, of course, is not the case for everyone. Uh, But typically, the morning is the best and then time for reflection and then make sure we follow up the next day. If if I always used to, if I had to let somebody go, I let them go on a Friday because if I let them go on a Friday, then people could get it out of their system over the weekend. But if I let somebody go on a Monday, then people were fractured. Yeah. Um, yeah. And second guessing everything and wondering what was going to happen to them for the rest of the week. So I hence lost a whole week of people's yeah. brain matter. Yeah. Yeah. That makes total sense. I would just say Friday, af- not Friday afternoon, Friday morning. Uh, good. Yeah. So you don't have them put in a full day and then tell them it's not working out for them. Yeah. Um, how can you be vulnerable without looking weak? I mean, I think that's a lot of what people worry about. Yeah, absolutely. You know, it's interesting. Uh, And I would even say for people to really challenge that when you see a leader that stands up and says, I made a mistake, or when you ask somebody a question and they say, I don't know the answer to that question, but I can find out. My challenge to those people that think vulnerability looks weak is show me what vulnerability looks like and show me that that's really weak. Because in my experience, when we stand with confidence in our vulnerability, which means we open ourselves up to not having the answers, not knowing the right thing to do, um, being able to admit that we were wrong. In my experience, oftentimes, we know that that actually looks like strength and, and we appreciate that. And the other aspect of vulnerability is that if I were to say to you, Mark, I need help, you know, would you think I was weak or would you see that as an opportunity to be able to support me and it enables us to be able to work together? So I think actually it's a real misperception that we have. We think that we'll appear weak, but if we test it out, it actually is a, it's a real source of strength for us. Yeah, it's not, it's not a question of, uh, the leader saying, I don't know what to do. And and looking and the whole line falls apart. Yeah. It's basically saying, I have ideas about this, uh, but I'd like to hear yours as well. And, or here's my thinking on it. Tell me if you think this is right or how you would do it differently. 
Well, and I think what's interesting actually is what we've seen in, in, in our studies is that when a leader says, I don't know, and now they shouldn't say just, I don't know, and that's it. I mean, I don't know, and here's how we'll figure out is the right thing to say. But when a leader says, I don't know, the people around them know that they don't know because these are complex times. We know that people don't have, there isn't a single right answer. Right. And so actually saying, I don't know, increases people's level of perception of a leader's strength um, because it's honest. And and I prefer that myself. And I think most thinking successful people do. Yeah. Um, do the skills needed to be an effective, compassionate leader change at different stages and ages of one's career? Because yes. I think, you know, you're kind of hard. Uh, you think everything's black and white in your 20s, but I'm 61. Now I realize nothing's black and white. So what's your take on that? I think that, I mean, like any leadership um, journey, it is it is developmental. And I think especially as we talk about, you know, you combine, need to combine compassion with wisdom. And wisdom is something that, you know, nobody can tell you the answers to some things. They are things that we need to just learn. And that's really, as we age, we we, we learn from our mistakes and we hopefully get wiser because of our experience. So I definitely think the the application, the intention to be a benefit, the intention to bring our best wisdom to the table is true, whether you're a first level leader in your early 20s or, you know, towards the end of your career, how it shows up is definitely different because of the different experience that we have, the different learning that we have, um, our different ability to be able to hold space when things are difficult. I know it was it's much more easier to, for me to be vulnerable now because I've got enough credibility behind me than it was when I was in my 20s and I was trying to prove everybody that I had all the answers. That's just part of part of our, our, our natural journey as leaders. How important is it for leaders to understand the cultures their employees come from to yeah. be an effective leader? Because, you know, how I might lead somebody in Japan has got to be different, right? Yes. The culture yeah. is different. And even in the United States, how I might lead in Texas is going to be different than in New York. Yeah, yeah. We have to, as leaders, we have to recognize that we are working in different cultural contexts that, you know, even just the most simple thing, like, um, you know, if you talk about in Japan, for example, where you have to be so sensitive to not, you know, to enabling people to save face, which is very different um, than if you were in the Netherlands or in New York, where, you know, telling it like it is, is, is a sign of respect, like, you know, calling people out on things. So we absolutely need to take into consideration cultural differences. Um, but at the same time, um, knowing that we're in, you know, very diverse environments, you know, you know, we could have somebody, we could, we also can't make assumptions, you know, just because somebody is from, from Japan doesn't necessarily mean that they embrace all the unique aspects of the Japanese culture. So it again gets back to what I talked about earlier, the need to be curious for me to be able to say, Mark, I'm I'm doing my best to be able to deliver this message in the best and most compassionate way possible. But tell me how it's landing for you. Is this working for you? Like, let no, we need to have a dialogue um, so that I can then learn and make sure that I'm not making assumptions just because I'm, you know, pegging you as uh, as as a particular cultural context. So my last question to you is: How do you train young managers how best to communicate in a positive, authentic, not condescending? way with employees uh, who are older than them that they're end up managing? Yeah. Yeah. It's a great question. And, and we certainly see it all the time, especially in a lot of the tech sector where we work. 
Um, you know, I think that I think that it is fundamentally um, about 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 ha- being respectful and starting with, you know, seeing people regardless of their uh, their age or their gender, really respecting. And and I think one of the things that when we talk to especially young leaders that um, and we talk to them about respect is is we find, you know, the underlying they they don't necessarily, you know, they 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 see older people that are fumbling with their technology and don't know how to be able to do the most basic things, and they lose respect for them. They don't see the respect that they have in terms of what they can teach them from a communication perspective or from a leadership perspective. And so, you know, a lot of the things that we look at with companies is how to be able to look at inter cross generational uh, mentoring because we know that there's a lot of things that we can all teach each other. Um, but foundationally, it's 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 based on respect, and and you can't fake that. I can feel if you don't respect me, um, and so it's not something that I can just teach you. It's something that intuitively I have to be able to support you in fully embracing. This is actually my last question before we let you go. What's the one thing you've learned, or two things you've learned from leading your own organization yeah. that has made a difference uh, for you? Yeah, that's a great question. I think, um, well, I love that you talked about vulnerability earlier, because I think the one thing that I have learned, even though I study vulnerability, it's still something that is hard for me. I think I grew up in a culture, especially as a female professional, where showing signs of weakness was not something that I was going to be comfortable doing. And so being vulnerable is something that I am continually learning. And uh, and uh, what has been amazing is that when I have been vulnerable, it is amazing how people step in to be able to support me. But for me, saying I need help is not something that's easy for me. So I'll just say that to everybody who also is on a journey of vulnerability. Um, and the second thing is, I think that, um, you know, the second thing that I've also really learned is is how important it is um, for me to for me to be able um, to set, to be a good role model. You know, I tend to, like, I like working on weekends. I like working in the evenings. I'm a night owl. And, you know, I've never expected other people to do the same, but I know, and I've been given feedback, um, you know, that people think that, you know, because I'm all the, on all the time that they need to, too. Um, and so for me, it's it's really about being aware of the uh, of the shadow that you cast, and uh, and really being able to make sure that you support people in in developing their own healthy journey and healthy balance within a working context. Jacqueline, I have to tell you, I so enjoyed the book. It was so such a pleasure to have you on for a second time, uh, and I look forward to the next book that you might write. Uh, so. Um, best of luck with this book. And um, again, we'll look forward to the next one. Mark, thank you so much. And thank you for everything that you do. And, and thank you everyone for listening. It was a real pleasure to be back. And yes, look forward to uh, to next time. Thank you for listening to another episode of The Best Business Minds. Tune in every Friday at 12 p.m. Eastern time for our live recordings. Go to www.thebestbusinessminds.com for more information and follow us on LinkedIn and Twitter to be kept up to date with our upcoming guests and other bonus material. See you next time.